0: You know, when God supernaturally intervenes in our lives, whether that's in our conversion, whether that's just in powerful moments of growth and change, whether that's seeing him work mightily in the circumstances of our lives to bring different kinds of change that can only be explained by his hand, I think we experience all kinds of encouragement, just all kinds of immediate delight and joy that okay our God is with us our God is for us our God is doing good to us and then behind that we just experience all kinds of hope that oh this is just the beginning this is just going to keep going upward this is just going to keep getting better and sometimes this hope this expectation runs way ahead of the plan of God we think you know I'll never sin again might think that I'll just, I'll never be discouraged again, never get angry again, I'll never fail again, I'll never face that temptation or trial again. We might think, you know, finally revival, it's breaking out in our community. Finally, it's happening in our church. Finally, whatever it is we've been praying for, longing for, to change for the better. Some moment in parenting that just the light breaks through. Some moment in marriage where you think, okay, this is it. It's This is better. Some moment in friendship, in health, in work, in society around us, in ministry. And then it stays the same or it gets worse. A breakthrough moment becomes a breakdown moment. The next day brings all the same struggles and troubles or perhaps greater, perhaps harder than it's ever been. Because the faithful Christian life is filled with disappointment. Did anyone ever tell you that? It's filled with it. But it's also filled with consolation, filled with comforts. In fact, the Christian life is a life of daily, desperate dependence upon the consolation of the Lord, the comforts of the Lord. Because throughout the Bible, we see it in the stories of Scripture, God's people constantly endure loss. So, how about you? What are your great losses? What are your great disappointments? What has the Lord handed to you only to then take it away? And most importantly, what might He intend for us in those very moments? What does he offer us in those very moments? Because he really does know how to meet us there. He's the master of meeting us in the lowest places. How to give exactly what we need in that moment. That's what 1 Kings 19 is about. If you want a main point for this morning, it's basically the title, The Lord Alone is God the Lord of our disappointments and our consolations. The Lord alone is God. He is the Lord of our disappointments and our consolations. Because In 1 Kings 18, if you remember from two weeks ago, we witnessed this tremendous turn of events in Israel. The prophet Elijah had a standoff with 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. And the Lord answered with fire from heaven, consuming the sacrifice that Elijah had offered instead of consuming the people. while Baal, the false God, didn't even answer because he couldn't answer and he couldn't answer because he's not real. And so the false prophets are put down. The people of the Lord of God profess the Lord as God. the Lord sends rain upon the land. Ahab jumps in his chariot to ride to Jezreel, and then Elijah, 1 Kings 18, 46, it says, because the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, he outran Ahab in his chariot to Jezreel 20 miles. He outran two horses pulling a chariot. Things are looking really good at this point. The prophet is flying high, like his highest dreams, his deepest prayers for this nation seem to be coming to fruition. Just all the years of sowing and watering and sowing and watering and praying and toiling and ministering the Word that he's just starting to see these little green things coming up out of the soil like, here it comes. We're going to get this great harvest. And then chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You're a dead man, Jezebel says. Verse 3 Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. You're reading, you just go, what? After reading 1 Kings 18, that's really surprising, isn't it? I mean, Elijah just stood against 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. He just stood against Ahab. He just did so in the presence of all the people of Israel. And the Lord stood with him and sent fire from heaven that consumed the sacrifice in answering to his prayer. It burned up the wood and the stones. It, it licked up the water. It consumed the dust. He saw all that. Everybody saw all that. People are going to profess the Lord is God. They're going to help Elijah slaughter all these priests, false priests at the brook of Kishon. And then in the power of the Spirit, he's going to outrun a chariot 20 miles to Jezreel. And now Jezebel hears this story and threatens Elijah's life by the power of her gods. What do you expect Elijah to do at this point? What do you expect him to say? Bring it, lady. Just tell me where you want to meet. The Lord's God, not Baal. I don't know if you heard the whole story, but fire from heaven, everybody consumed. There's plenty more fire where that came, girl. Don't even bring matches. Just show up. That's what you think. Verse 3, then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. How quickly faith can falter. How quickly faith can just crumble, how quickly our strength can become weakness, how quickly encouragement can turn to discouragement. That Whatever victory Elijah had enjoyed on Mount Carmel that he expected to be this consuming fire of revival, this great earthquake that sort of went out into the whole nation and provoked change from the top to bottom, even hoping Jezebel would hear the news and just hit her knees and confess the Lord is God. Instead, it brings in his mind nothing, just more pain. Those who wanted him dead before still want him dead. Those who always threatened his life are still threatening his life, except now they're nearby. He just ran to their hometown. He's hanging out at their gates. He doesn't pray. He doesn't wait on the Lord. He just runs. You might remember the story when Moses is sent back to Egypt by God to let the people know that he's heard their prayers, he's heard their cries, he's going to move to deliver them. And Moses brings that message to them in Exodus chapter 4, and the people respond with these words, Exodus 4.31, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that they had, he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. They're just jumping around, giving high fives, excited, like Moses is the hero. The people elated. He's like, yes, this is what I'm talking about. Then you get Exodus 5, where Pharaoh applies, who is the Lord? But I should obey his voice and let Israel go. Pharaoh's like, get back to work. In fact, now make bricks without straw. In fact, now how about if we beat your foreman every day? Let's do that. See how that goes. And the people, and they turn on Moses. In about 10 seconds, they say, The Lord, look on you and judge, Moses, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses then turns on the Lord. Oh, Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you've not delivered your people at all. I mean, just hours. Go from party time to accusation. Because nobody stopped to ask the Lord what he meant. Nobody stopped to ask the Lord exactly how he was going to bring it about. Nobody stopped to wonder, wait a minute, it's his time, his way, his purposes, his designs, his desires. So maybe ask yourself even now, what, what assumptions do you make about the Lord and how he ought to govern your life? What assumptions do you make about the Lord and how he ought to govern your life, how he ought to control your circumstances, how he ought to direct your world, how he ought to control the people around you, what he ought to do. What assumptions do you make about the kind of childhood he should have given you, the kind of marriage he should have given you, the kind of singleness he should have given you, should have given you a child, not childlessness, should have given you a child that lived, not a child that died. A career that you kept, not lost. Social joy and success, not humiliation, not rejection, not loss of health, not loss of a loved one who dies apart from Christ, not betrayal of a friend, not a door that opens for you only to slam in your face right when you get there. Not years of faithfulness and ministry that just keep bearing thorns. And sometimes we don't even know what we demand of the Lord until we lose it. Sometimes we don't know how tightly we grip things until he pries it from our fingers under great protest. Abraham, Genesis 15, 4, you're going to have a son. I will make you a great nation and make of you a great nation through him. And your descendants will be like the stars of the sea. Are the stars of the sky and like the sand beside the sea. Well, it's going to be twenty-five years before he gets that son. And a lot of mess and a lot of pain and a lot of anguish in the middle. Joseph, Genesis thirty-seven. Your brothers are going to bow to you. Even your father will pay tribute. But well, there's going to be beatings and imprisonment and slavery for years before it ever happens. David, you're anointed to be king of Israel, 1 Samuel 16. It's going to be 15 to 20 years before it happens, with a lot of caves and a lot of hunger and a lot of running for his life in the middle. Behold the work of the Lord. There's no teacher like him who knows how to perfectly craft disappointment. Perfectly craft not giving us what we want. Perfectly craft all the circumstances of life to serve the greatness of His glory and the true goodness of our salvation. The true moving of His purposes in Christ. It's not the bitterness of divine cruelty. This is the glory of divine providence. That's why Paul's going to say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. So many of his ways are just past finding out. Many of his promises are not fulfilled on earth. So again, ask yourself this question. What do you tend to do between promise and fulfillment? And all that space in the middle, all those valleys in the middle, when nothing's going according to plan, between that foretaste of glory and the actual glory, how do you tend to handle deep disappointments from the Lord? Where do you run? Where do you turn? What do you go to? To not feel it. To not face it. To not accept it. Well, here's how Elijah handles it. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. Saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Pray for death and go to bed. That's Elijah's response. He doesn't see the point of going on. He doesn't see how this could possibly work out for good. All the faithful who went before him failed to bring in the visible kingdom of God And he at least expected to fare better, especially after that glorious display of God's power the day before. He thought, this is going to be different. So He's going to give this final lunge across the finish line, exhausted, tired. But here it is, and he sees the trophy in front of him. He hears the crowds cheering. He sees the podium where he's going to get sort of the prize and falls to the ground. And then somebody says, hey, there's 10 more laps to go. And he's like, I, I can't go anymore. I can't keep running. I can't take another day of this. I'm just going to go to bed and hope to wake up on the other side. What do you tend to do there? How do you instinctively console yourself? when that kind of disappointment, that kind of loss, hits you. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. The Lord sent him a meal, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So after praying for death and going to sleep, the Lord sends his angel to wake him and feed him this hot meal. Doesn't pray, doesn't hear him give thanks, just goes back to bed. The angel wakes him again, cares for him again, feeds him again. And I think we're meant to see just the kindness of the Lord, meeting him where He is, the graciousness of the Lord, providing just in his moment of weakness. God could have just left him there. God could have just said, you know, I'm just I'm going to start with some of these little younger, Maybe take a little bit more. He's going to feed him, and then supernaturally, give him strength on that food, to go all the way to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, the place where God met Moses, the place where Moses brought the people and the people met God, the Mount of God. He's going to bring them back to where it all started, where the Lord entered into covenant with the nation of Israel after redeeming them from Egypt. The Lord certainly could have just met Elijah right where he is. He said, no, I'm going to bring you 40 days and nights on this little bit of food to my mountain, to my workshop. A little over 250 miles is how far he's going to go, which may sound like a long way, but not for 40 days. That's like averaging like maybe just a few miles a day. In other words, this is one of the slowest walks you could ever imagine. He is trudging. He is barely making it. And on the strength of that food, the Lord sustains him as he trudges a little a day, 40 days, 40 nights. And also, I think, so that God can do it in those days, which have a lot of significance in the nation of Israel. The 40 days and nights part. It will have a lot of significance in the ministry of Jesus when we get there. Then he came to a cave there at the mount and lodged in it, which even then there is a grace in that. The people of Israel, remember, weren't allowed to touch that mountain without dying. And he's going to go get in a cave in it, lodge there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. You might wonder, came to him for who? Well, for him. Usually the word of the Lord is coming to Elijah for others. This one's for him. Because he's the one that needs the word more than anyone right now. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord comes to Elijah and says, what are you doing here? And we're meant to hear it as a rebuke, not wondering what he's doing, not curiosity, but rebuke. Why are you running, Elijah? Why are you trying to quit? And Elijah answers, well, I've been very jealous for you, Lord, for your name. I've been laboring. The people, they've forsaken you. They're not listening to me. Now they're trying to kill me. I've tried, Lord. I've served you, followed you, proclaimed you to a people who forsake you and hate me. It's not working. I mean, that was a nice little fire from heaven thing you did last month. But nothing's changing. And the Lord speaks. The Lord draws near. The Lord sends this strong wind, this really a tornado, that tears the mountains and breaks the rocks in pieces. That's a serious tornado. We're not talking F5. This is like F12. If it starts ripping rocks off a mountain, the Lord wasn't in it. Since an earthquake and fire, but the Lord's not in the earthquake, not in the fire. In other words, he's not going to come in the power and in the force that Elijah wants. It's not going to come in the form that Elijah hoped he would come in in the nation. Just earthquake, fire, whirlwind stuff to bring about the change that he's been praying for, laboring for. It's like Elijah's asking you sent fire from heaven, consumed the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. Well, Lord, why don't you just keep going? Keep bringing that. The battle should be won by now. The struggle should be over. It should not be this hard. It should not take this long. Which is why the Lord's going to come to him in a low whisper. I'm not going to come to you the way you please. I'm going to come to you as I please. I'm not going to work on your timetable, my timetable. I'm not going to come in all the forms you want me to come and do all that you want me to do. I will come according to my purposes, my desires, my designs. Fire yesterday, whisper today. In many ways, he's coming to Elijah as Elijah truly needs right now. Though Elijah, I think, probably doesn't exactly understand it, that why God isn't dealing with it and dealing with him as the prophet desires, but according to his own purposes, according to his own plan, but this is what Elijah needs to see, okay, the Lord is not your heavenly butler. he That's not how prayer works, not how relating to him works. The, we're his instrument, he's not our instrument. We're in his hands, he's not in our hands. The C.S. Lewis says he's not a tame lion. Elijah needs to see that, needs to hear that, that He loves him. He's good to him. He delivers him, helps him. But his way, his time, always for our eternal good, always for his namesake, because the whisper is also an expression of God's compassion for Elijah. He could rip Elijah apart with the wind. He could swallow him up in an earthquake. He could consume him with fire. he doesn't. He comes gently. Aren't you glad? That when God first approached you, opened your eyes, your ears to him, he came in a whisper. He came in Jesus. Others will not enjoy that first introduction to him. So even to see the grace here on the mountain of God approaching him tenderly. Elijah wraps his face in his cloak, perhaps in fear of the Lord, perhaps in frustration with the Lord. Either way, he doesn't want to see the Lord. So the Lord asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? I didn't call you to flee from Jezreel. I told you to run there. There was a day when I hid you from Ahab, a day when I hid you from Jezebel, a day when I fed you in the wilderness, a day when I cared for you by a widow. Those days are over. This is new day, new thing we're doing. I'm not doing it fast. I'm not doing it according to your timeline to achieve your goals, however good your goals might be. So again, the prophet explains his discouragement. I've been very jealous for the Lord. The God of hosts. We need to realize that the Lord doesn't dispute that. Yes, you have. But your jealousy for the Lord isn't what will change the world. Your jealousy for the Lord isn't what is going to dictate my timeline. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Yes, they have. Thrown down your altars. They sure have. Killed your prophets with a sword. They certainly have. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You just, he just—he saw victory right there, and then, right when he was going to touch it, just defeat clamps back down. Right when that beam of light pokes through the clouds, just darkness again. So Elijah just cries out, "I'm all that's left, and they're trying to kill me too," which. I think it really does show the low part of this for him. It's not just about disappointment. It's not just about loss, but his utter loneliness in it. Utter loneliness in life, in ministry. Sure, this is the worst part, right? It's not just what you're carrying, but that it just seems like you're the only one carrying it. The only one feeling it. The feeling of complete loneliness in what you're facing. No one can really understand what you're going through. No one else is carrying what you're carrying. Nobody's having to face what you're facing. And of course, this is one of the things the Lord will will correct and help him see. That may feel true, Elijah, but it's not true. Everything I was tracking with you all through the jealousy and the covenant stuff and the altars till you got to that part where nobody gets you. That you're all alone in it. No, somebody's with you. I'm with you. Oh, and there's a bunch of others, too. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elijah, the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal. Every mouth that has not kissed him. The Lord's going to say, okay, Elijah, I'm sending you back. but Not to Ahab, but to anoint two kings and a prophet. And they will continue my work. But long after, you're gone. And you almost remember again, this just Moses where God's like, all right, come up here, Moses. I'm going to show you the promised land. See it? But you're not going in. Joshua's going to take him in. All right, David. Yeah, you see, here's all the supplies for the temple. I know you want to build it. Great. You're not going to build it. Solomon's going to build it. You're not going to see it, this side of heaven. Elijah, you want to see judgment upon the household of Ahab? You want to see restoration of the prophets? You want to see this kingdom coming? Answer, no. You'll hear about it. You'll anoint others to do it. You'll anoint others to continue that work. And Then he closes with this final, deep, wonderful word of consolation. Yet I will leave 7,000. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. That Paul in Romans 11 interprets to mean this is God's sovereign grace in his purposes in redeeming his elect. There are 7,000 by my grace I have set apart to believe me, to look to me for salvation, to not worship falsely to repent and trust in me, to look to the Messiah that I will supply. The faithful remnant, Elijah, of whom you know not. You're not alone. It's not all on you. You don't see the whole picture. You don't know the end from the beginning. I do. He's saying, and I will continue redeeming my people and judging the wicked long after you're taken from this world. Because my kingdom is not measured by your perceptions. We need that, don't we? That kind of correction from the Lord, that kind of consolation from the Lord that he sees all our work. We don't see all his work. We might see everything we're doing or trying to do. We don't even see a fraction of what he's doing, of where it's going, of how big it is, of what he's bringing about in Christ. And so we really do have to learn just to trust him. How do we just trust him one step at a time, one day at a time, because we just don't know where this is going? Psalm 11.3, question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's what's thrown out to David. Answer, verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The foundations are destroyed. What are we going to do? His answer is, the Lord still reigns, the Lord's still sovereign, the Lord's still in control, the Lord's still bringing about His purposes. It's all going according to His plan. Always has, always will. So even in Psalm 11, He's saying, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm doing things for the sake of my name that you can't fathom. So he's saying to Elijah, There are thousands you just don't know about. Rest in me. Trust me. It's bigger than you. The kingdom is coming, but in a form and in a way that I'm choosing. So, Elijah, just feed on my word. Trust in my promises. Walk in my spirit. You have help, you will see my glory. It is worth it. You're just not going to see it all right now. We really do prefer the days on Mount Carmel, right? Just watching fire come from heaven, consume our enemies, hearing the repentance of God's people, watching the world changing in our favor. It's really hard to live in Jezreel. Where disappointment just keeps hitting you. Where the world just keeps being the world. Where we feel helpless to do anything about it. Where the kingdom of Christ just seems far away. Verse 19, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him. I think we're meant to see the sort of the ugh of it. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, gave it to the people, they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Though We don't see Elijah anointing Elisha here. He is going to enlist him into service, I think a little begrudgingly. In sort of a grumpy kind of way. The Lord told Elijah to anoint Hazael and Jehu. He's not going to do it. Elijah is going to do it years later. Elijah just sort of right now seems to be persisting in his discouragement, sort of persisting in this is not how I wanted it to go. The fact that he won't see the tangible end of his labors, the fact that he won't really see it come to fruition. It's just not going to happen in his day. He gets to hear a little bit about it, but not see it. In fact, the fulfillment of Elijah's ministry isn't going to come for almost a thousand more years. It's not going to be Jehu or Hazael or Elisha. There are just going to be more steps in that direction. Another prophet's going to rise in his spirit and power, called John the Baptist, who will announce God in the flesh jesus of nazareth nazareth who would by the way also spend 40 years in the wilderness without food without drink but unlike elijah he will not despair unlike elijah he will not aim low though utterly alone elijah you think you're alone nobody more alone than jesus when he's in the wilderness what he's facing, what he's carrying, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he's about to drink. That's aloneness. The devil will come to Jesus there in the wilderness after 40 days, weakest point, and tempt him. Listen to the third of those temptations. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you. If you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In other words, Jesus was offered everything Elijah wanted God over the kingdoms of the world, God bringing an earthly sort of restoration of stuff in good worship. But Jesus refused. Firstly, because he's not going to give glory to anybody but his father. I'm not going to give it to Satan. But second of all, because there's an eternal purpose to which Jesus is moving, an eternal purpose for which Jesus was sent that even Satan can't comprehend. Satan actually thinks this is tempting. And to all of us, it typically would be. Jesus, not buying it. Because even Satan can't comprehend why he came. What he's about to do. That just power... And earthly change is just not the goal. The kingdom's coming, but in an otherworldly kind of way. We read of it this morning in Matthew 17. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Wow, there's Elijah again. Now he's seeing it. Moses and Elijah who who saw their earthly rewards from this distance but never achieved them. And now on the Mount of Transfiguration, they get to see the coming kingdom. Which isn't just the right arrangement of little pieces on earth for them. It's a person. It's God in the flesh. Glorified. Reigning. They see the Son of God incarnate. They see the promises of the Old Covenant being fulfilled. They behold the glory of the Lord. They behold the atonement for their sins. They behold the very source of their salvation. So I think Elijah's probably at this point starting to realize that way back in 1 Kings 19, he was aiming way too low. Just put Ahab and Jezebel down. Just tear down these false altars, build better ones. Put better leaders in place, clean up the worship. All good stuff, but just nowhere near high enough. So God's going to withhold 100 bucks from Elijah, waiting to give him 900 trillion. And Elijah thinks he doesn't see it. Now he's starting to see it. Even if you recall, on this Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's going to suggest that they pitch a few tents and just stay there. Hey, this is so great. Wow, Moses, Elijah, Jesus glorified. Oh, let's do three tents, and we'll just stay here. Just do this. And the Father's going to have to rebuke him. But he says, uh, no, not doing that. Not about Moses, not about Elijah. It's about him. It's not just about him hanging out on this mountain. No, Jesus isn't going to stay transfigured, right? He's going to go down the mountain and make his way to another mountain, to Calvary. The place where he will be crucified. And how shocking was that to the disciples? They thought Jesus was coming as a lion to rule, not a lamb to be slaughtered. Even John the Baptist, in one chapter, it's Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Chapters later, he's in prison going, Are you the one? I didn't think it was going to go like this me getting beheaded. And when Jesus tells them of his coming crucifixion in Matthew 16, Peter tried to stop him. It's like, no way, whoa, whoa, Jesus, you ain't going to die. You're coming to take this whole thing over. And Jesus is going to say, get behind me, Satan. Again, it's, there's another of Satan's temptations. You don't have to go to the cross. Just, just run stuff. Because they can't comprehend that if Jesus didn't go to the cross, the only one in the kingdom of God will be God. They can't see that part yet. And so at the cross, Jesus was a huge disappointment. Even after he rose from the grave, the disciples couldn't comprehend it. Remember how those two dejected disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus? And Jesus comes up beside them and they say to Jesus about Jesus we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Guess not. And Jesus had to explain it to him. Oh, foolish ones. That's what he calls them foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. If you read the prophets, Elijah and Elisha and all these others, you, you would have seen it. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? You go, huh? It was necessary, he says. It's necessary for me to be rejected. It's necessary for me to be scorned and mocked. It's necessary for Jesus to be crucified. Necessary for it not to be the way you want it to be. Necessary so that people can be saved so that God's wrath can be satisfied, so that God's elect can be redeemed. It's necessary that you not get what you want, so that you can be forgiven. That's what he's saying. Necessary so that atonement can be made. Necessary so that there can be pardon for sin. Necessary that God's wrath can be absorbed. Necessary that you can actually be reconciled to this God that you're so eager to see. You're so eager to see on earth. What it means is the greatest disappointment in the history of the world, in God's providence, was the single greatest source of hope in the history of the world. The greatest loss to the disciples in the history of the world was the source of the greatest gain. To all those who believe, which is really what this text even calls us to do, Elijah, believe. You now believe that God will use all your disappointments. He'll be Lord of them, shape them to show you your need for a hope that's higher than earthly stuff. For the forgiveness of sins that is in Christ alone. Reconciliation to God that's in Christ alone. Because the Christian life is full of disappointments, but every one of them worthwhile. Worthwhile. Is God uses every one of them to bring you to faith in Jesus. Every one of them to conform you to the image of Jesus. Uses every one of them to show you your need constantly for his compassion. For his mercies. How come they come every day? Because you need them every day. And if you don't feel your need for them every day, why not? So we have to first pray, Lord, help me feel the disappointment I should feel. Feel the need for consolation. And oh, does he give consolation. As he uses every disappointment to wean us off the love of this world, to fix our eyes on Jesus, and then to teach us, he really is all satisfying, He really is enough. So I'll tell you what real disappointment is. It's going to the grave thinking that God does not exist and then waking up seeing him face to face whose presence is a consuming fire. It's going to the grave believing that your selfish righteous deeds are enough to satisfy the perfect holy justice of God and then waking up to see those deeds burn up like stubble and you standing naked before your maker with no answer for your sin. It's spending your days reviling and scorning Jesus Christ in this life, impressing the world, winning their applause, only to meet him someday when he's on a throne, and his eyes burning like fire, and his voice like the sound of roaring waters, and his word just cuts through you like sickle in a week. Like sickle in a wheat field just goes through, and you're exposed. That, my friends, is disappointment. And a disappointment from which there's no recovery. That's the disappointment you don't want. The disappointment you want is that your life doesn't work out the way you wanted it to, and in that process, Jesus redeemed you that all the little details didn't go in your favor and, and all the circumstances brought pain and sorrow and all the things that the Lord brought about in your life just sort of crumbled in your hands. And he uses all that to glorify you, to forgive you, to humble you, to tether you to him. So when you wake up on the other side, it's there's Abba, Father, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Master." So if your faith is in Jesus Christ and every loss you know in this life is the only loss you'll ever know, it's the only loss you'll ever know, and you will recover. Oh, will you recover from the losses of this life? The sufferings of this life will always be massively overshadowed by the glories of grace and redemption that follow those disappointments. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's like just shouldn't even be compared. The sufferings of this life so small compared to glory is going to be revealed. That everything the Lord is doing in your life, every good he seems to be withholding, every pain he's delivering, every disappointment that is mounting is working for your salvation to His glory. It's working to build His church for Christ's exaltation. Every detail of every trial, it's like the scraping of a chisel by the master sculptor on you, His marble. It's just going to make a masterpiece of your soul. Every tear will be wiped away. Every disappointment will give way to rejoicing. Every loss will... Will be gain which is why we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ therefore my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. let's pray Father, please push that very truth into our hearts in this moment. That thanks be to you, Lord, the Lord of our disappointments, the Lord of Elijah, the Lord of losses, but oh, the Lord of consolation, of comfort, of forgiveness, of of grace. You've given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, help us to be steadfast, to be immovable in faith, immovable in trials. Because you cause us to stand. Make us always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labors are not in vain. Teach us that now. Sustain us with that food in the wilderness. So when we get to your mount, it's just worship, just rejoicing, just thanks be to you together forever. It's in Christ's name we give you thanks. Amen.